Good morning. Welcome to the house of the Lord. Those of you joining us online, good morning to you also. Romans chapter 1 this morning, the noble servant. We will stand and take verses 1 and 2 and try to get to verse 7 in the exposition. I hope that especially for you younger Christians, these teachings aren't wasted on you. Uh, If you take notes, reread them later. If I use words you don't understand, write it down, look it up. Where are you going to be in five years? The world doesn't want to beat your brains out. They just want to take Christ from you. You're going to be ready for them. I hope, I hope in five, ten years, you younger Christians are still standing in the faith. You see some of these older Christians, they're still standing. This does not count towards my time. All right. Romans chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Would you please stand for the reading of God's word? Good, that's, that's good. The poorly disciplined one has the poorest chance in combat. All right. Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated to the gospel of God, which he promised before through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Please be seated. I wanted to read more, but that cuts into my time. So... We'll get to it. It is never the easy situations that we turn to look for heroes. It's the ones who have overcome. Of course, this man Paul is one of those heroes. He wrote to the Philippians while in jail that I may know him, that is Christ, and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. Well, if you don't know what that means, you need to reread it, maybe memorize it, and get to the bottom of it. It is that important. We all should have heroes, every one of us, at some point in our life. Before there was Paul, there was Stephen. Before there was Stephen, there was Esther. Before there was Esther, there was Jeremiah, and probably one of the greatest Old Testament servants who faced suffering, there was Joseph. These people in the scripture are real people with real feelings, just like we are, just like we have, and yet they overcame. They overcame in the face of adversity. And here, Paul is one of those heroes to this church in Rome. I think I'm a little nervous around a person who doesn't have heroes. What does that mean? What does it say? There's no one in your life that you look towards. Well, Jesus is my hero. Well, he's your savior. He's your Lord. He's beyond hero. You need people heroes too. And uh, we'll get to that as we go through Romans. We got a lot of it in the book of Acts. And this first chapter of Romans is a book all by itself. May, again, these teachings not be wasted. May you be able to appreciate Okay, that is something I can use, maybe not now, maybe later. How does a pastor preach to broken hearts? Well, sometimes it's direct preaching. Other times he's just trying to make them stronger. Because that, that uh, strong heart is better than a weak one. 
Well, let's look at verse 1. Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle separated to the gospel of God. God. He's just getting warmed up in these first seven verses. Uh, it, but, but already you can get a sense that uh, he's percolating, he's beginning to bubble as he writes. He's, he's, I don't think he sat down and said, I'm going to write 16 chapters. I think he was just going to give a quick hello. And it just flowed out of him. This church that he is writing to in Rome, uh, where that church worked, was Western civilization's largest city at the time. Estimated population, one to four million. Earlier, he, we read Luke write about Paul's feelings on Rome. He said, Paul purposed in his spirit, when he had passed through Macedonia and Achaia, to go to Jerusalem, saying, after I have been there, I must also see Rome. Not as a tourist. He was going to take enemy territory. He was going as an invader from Satan's perspective. Nero, who is the emperor about the time Paul arrives there, he, he, he's not yet anti-Christian, but he's going to be not long after Paul meets with him. Already this name of this man, Paul, excited the Christians there in Rome because he was a hero to them, and not by accident. Some of his exploits were previously listed and what we know as 1 Corinthians, already in circulation at this time, by the time he reaches Rome. And in that letter, uh, again, his exploits are briefly touched on uh, then in 2 Corinthians, in that 11th chapter. And so, yeah, in verse 1, he says, Bondservant, apostle, saint. So powerful was the impact of this letter when read in Rome. That years later when he does arrive, as we covered in that last section of Acts, they hastened to meet him. They came out 30, 40 miles just to love on him and receive him while he was still in chains. They were not ashamed of him. There was too much love for that. And he had done nothing to deserve shame in the first place. He was one of their heroes. And this Roman letter endeared that church in Rome to him even more. Where he says bondservant, that Greek word is slave. The reason why they take the translators use bond slave, my best explanation for that is they're giving us an interpretive rendering, which they do from time to time. It's not out of context. Uh, I would prefer they did not do that. But they've never called me to ask. Well, over a third of that population in Rome were slaves. And Paul is identifying himself with them also. He doesn't have to. He could be writing to, his, to a bunch of free men. He's still going to say, I'm a slave of Jesus Christ. And how we look at that word slave in the eyes of the apostles, I think, is very important to us. So we'll better know how to serve this Jesus because we are his property, willfully. That's the bondservant part. Even though Paul enjoyed that rare and much prized status of a born free citizen of Rome, he still says, I'm not as free as you might think I am. 
I think Alan Redpath, it was that said, you're never really free until you are not free to be free of Christ. I have discovered that. It hurts sometimes, but it's worth it. He wrote again to the Philippians, But what things were gained to me, these I have counted loss for Christ. My freedom as a Roman citizen to go anywhere that I want in the Roman Empire, I would rather go where Christ wants me to go. I give up that citizenship, dual citizenship, but it is secondary to my citizenship in heaven. And when Onesimus the slave was saved by Paul while Paul was in chains, he became more than a slave. Paul wrote to his slave owner Philemon in the verse, verse 16 of Philemon, Paul says about Onesimus, no longer as a slave. Receive him no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, a brother, a beloved brother. That's what he says, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. There's so much doctrine, so much practicality packed into that. He's a beloved brother now, and he can be useful to you in this life. Things about this life and things in the spirit realm. Things of Christ. In the Old Testament, how this bondservant became the interpretation of the translators, it is because in the Old Testament, the bond, the slave that did not want to be free of his master went beyond the definition of the mere word slave. In Exodus chapter 21, God says, this about those servants who did not want to be free of their master. Verse 5, Exodus 21. If the servant plainly says, I love my master, I will not go free. Then, of course, it goes on to develop the thought that that servant would be taken to the uh, a post and, uh, and all would be pierced through his ear. And that would identify him forever as a willful servant. Love propping up the whole thing. And so it no longer means one who is no longer free. It means one who does not want to be free. We like to say that love held Jesus to the cross, not the nails. Well, love, not chains, is to hold the believer to Christ. It's the love of Christ that compels us. And it... Uh, you know, a, a good test to see how that love is doing is, how do you feel about those who aren't so lovable? He says a bondservant, a willful servant, that is, of Jesus Christ. In this letter, Paul uses the phrase Christ Jesus ten times and 23 times Jesus Christ, emphasizing the role of Christ as master and messiah, but personal. It's personal with him. It just, just comes out. Three times in these seven verses, he mentions Jesus Christ. He's not, it's not a redundancy. It is excitement. In the book of Deuteronomy, at the end of the life of Moses, we read this phrase, Moses, the servant of Yahweh. Well, Paul is saying the same thing, but he replaces Yahweh with Christ Jesus therefore identifying Jesus with Yahweh, God, the Son of the Old Testament. Four times in eight verses, we get Paul saying, Jesus Christ. And of course, not in the 
vain way of the world. He followed his heart. This Jesus, whom he suffered so much for, gladly is responsible for all of Paul's salvation, for his appointment as an apostle, for his victories, and for his place at the Lord's table in heaven. And he never forgot it. I don't think any Christian does. I don't think any born-again Christian ever forgets the package that comes with salvation in this life and the life to come. Called to be an apostle. Now let me back up on that statement, not take it back, but to also say things may dim every now and then, but they're still there and we can still see them. Called to be an apostle. Uh, the called apostle writing to called saints, as verse 7 will tell us. Paul placed himself on the same level as the other 12 apostles because that's where Christ put him. And I have to stop here to point this out because people kept challenging his apostolic authority. So that right there, for you younger Christians, is a lesson. In life, people are going to challenge you in an improper way. And it may bug you all your life. Learn from the scriptures how this man dealt with it. He stood his ground because he could not unknow what Jesus had taught him, what had Christ had done for him. He wrote to the Galatians, Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. Why would he have to say that? Why would he have to introduce himself that way to a church? Because there were the naysayers. In 1 Corinthians, he says, Am I not an apostle? Am I not free? Have I not seen Jesus, our Lord? Again, why would he have to put it in that question format? It is heartbreaking to see Christians sit under good teachings, then go out into the world, especially when they go to universities, or go out to some other churches sometimes, and pick up nonsense and come back strutting with it, eager to share it and boast, when it has no foundation in Scripture. But those who have given it to them are quite excited about quoting, misquoting Scripture. You will know them by their fruits. Back to this, Paul again, 2 Corinthians, this time, For I consider that I am not at all inferior to the most eminent apostles. This is a big deal. Because if he is not an apostle or under apostolic direct authority, then his scriptures are voided. They don't count, but they do count because he is an apostle. And Satan knew what he was doing by attacking this man. And yet in under this attack, he kept going forward, writing letters and asserting his apostolic authority, which is a big deal to the church. We'll come back to that. But our Christianity is built on the work of the prophets, yes, the Old Testament prophets, and the New Testament apostles and prophets also. Ephesians chapter 2, he'll write this letter. After, uh, years after he writes this Roman letter, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. Well, those apostles were entrusted with building the New Testament church and overseeing our New Testament scripture. Pretty big deal to have the God of creation entrust you with such a position. 
If you are a custodian in a church, if it is your job to clean the bathrooms and mop the floors, and God has appointed you to that, it is every bit of a big deal with God as this appointment was with Paul. Paul gets into that in the Corinthian letter. And in a way, he kind of says it. Well, I'll just say it this way. You take away the person that does those things in the house of God, and everybody will find out real quick that we would like God to send somebody to do this. Everything you do in God's house for God is a big deal to the Lord and to his people. And it is Satan that comes along and tries to uh, pump you up with false ambitions. They were entrusted with building the church, and that they did. Jesus built the New Testament on the foundation of the Old Testament scriptures, and not without it. Now, you young Christians, do you understand that? Are you able to repeat that to somebody? Do you believe it? Can you point to where it is in scripture? Well, I just did in Ephesians 2.20, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. You may say, well, Pastor, you speak like you got an attitude. Of course I got an attitude. I got a big chip on my shoulder, both shoulders, and it ain't going away against the lies of hell. And I think every Christian should. Some of you are more loving and gentle in your presentation. I can't be that. Uh, you know, you can wrap it in a bow and, you know, it's, it's fine. I'm not coming against that. I would wrap mine in barbed wire. It's just how I am. Well... Separated to the gospel of God. Well, pause. Well, Elijah was that way. John the Baptist, they came out to see him. You brood of vipers. <laughs> Repent. Anyway, uh, back to this. Separated to the gospel of God. Uh, one who is separated to God is separated from something else. He wrote to Timothy years later, although I was formerly a blasphemer and a persecutor, and an insolent man, I obtained mercy. How many are willing to confess, to call it like it is? And he did. In Leviticus, God said this about his people. I am Yahweh, your God, who has separated you from the peoples, from everybody else. All you have to do is be a follower. You are separated. In chapter 15, Paul writes, But I know that when I come to you, I shall come in the fullness of the blessings of the gospel of Christ. Yeah, why? Because he has been separated to Christ. And this is true for all of us. It should be. A servant who would be most effective for Jesus Christ must learn to burn bridges if he's going to separate. That's what bridges connect. Oftentimes with the wrong things, metaphorically speaking. In 1519, soon after the Spanish explorer Cortez arrived on the shores of Mexico with his 300 men, 10 of his 11 ships he had destroyed. He was sending a clear message to his troops. There's no turning back. There's no retreat. You can only go forward or die. And within two years the Aztec Empire was vanquished. Now, I'm not promoting or demoting what happened. My point is, there is a person that understood what it would take to get things done. Commitment, and commitment involves separation. And one reason why so many Christian, young Christians get done in is because they make unholy alliances. 
They don't separate from people that are a problem to Christ. They attach themselves to them and try to serve Jesus at the same time. You can't serve two masters. You'll love the one and hate the other. This is a principle that Jesus has given to us, especially in ministry. And so, verse 2, which he has promised before through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. That is the gospel and the coming of Christ, the gospel that he brings. So he's citing the Messianic prophecies. Alfred Endersheim, great scholar, long dead, Jewish. He found some 456 Old Testament verses referring to the Messiah and his times. Uh, Pretty uh, substantial work. There are more than 400. That's just the ones he found. If you teach the Bible, you see they fly, they come out all over the place. Conservatively, Jesus is also said to have fulfilled 300 prophecies in his earthly ministry alone. Uh, just take one. We'll go riding into Jerusalem on a donkey. Well, that was called almost 500 years before Christ came. Ephesians 3, 5 again, which in other ages was not made known to the sons of men as it has been now revealed by the Spirit to his holy apostles and prophets. And they then shared it with us and we have it here in writing. Christianity is neither coincident or unannounced. It is not a Johnny-come-lately religion. It had a long It has a long history behind it, and it had been long on the way. And God shared his plans with his prophets, and we have them. We're looking at one of them this morning. Peter has this to say about prophecy. (laughs) You've got to love Peter, man. He just, he did not mince words. He was not, you know, as scholastic as Paul. And he got to the point, and here it is. Of this salvation, the prophets have inquired and searched carefully, who prophesied of the grace that would come to you. He's saying the Old Testament prophets didn't get it like we got it. We have more information they do, but we don't have this information without them. And he continues about the prophets, searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ, who was in them, was indicating when he testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow, Isaiah 53, easy right there, to them it was revealed that not to themselves, but to us, they were ministering the things which now have been reported to you through those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things which angels desire to look into. And Peter, in his own way, said, this is some deep stuff. Are you getting it? Is it wasted on you? It doesn't do a pastor's heart well to teach simple things of Scripture for someone to someone for years, only to watch them a few years later burn it all up, discard it, fail to apply it. Or rather, refuse to. It happens. It doesn't happen to everyone, thank God, but it happens. Well, don't let that be you, and I sure hope it never will be me. I know of no other religion on earth able to make such boast as Peter did in that first letter, chapter 1, or throughout the New Testament. We who believe in Christ, 
We believe that Christ controlled the past, is in control of the present, and cannot be stopped from controlling the future. We believe that. He is sovereign. He is worthy. And that's why we worship him and no other. All of it grounded in scripture. Listen to Peter again. Second Peter this time. Just uh, FYI. First Peter is written to church, Christians, mainly Jewish, being persecuted for being Christians. Second Peter deals with uh, the heresies that are creeping into the church. Second Peter chapter 1. So we have the prophetic word confirmed, which you do well to heed. To do something with the Bible lessons. Not just to sit there and say, when's church going to be over? Or that was a deep point. And then just throw it away. Not apply it to your life. It has to show up in your life. Remember, God uses imperfect people. So don't be discouraged by your failures and shortcomings. When we get to Paul, I'll finish with Peter's verse, but I got some other stuff. (laughs) When we get to that verse where Paul says, oh, wretched man that I am. There's not a Christian who can't identify with that. And one of the proofs to that is whenever the song Amazing Grace is being sung in the church, just watch the people when they come to a wretch like me. There's sort of this spike in participation. Hands go up. Because we know that compared to a holy God, we are wretched. And he loves us anyway. He embraces us. He uses us. He's made a place for us. He's made us family. He calls us beloved. He died for us. Where are you going to find that in other religions? Not to mention the scriptures that back it up. And so we have the prophetic word confirmed or made more sure. Which you do well to heed as a light that shines in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. God has decided that it's going to take every bit of Christianity to do Christianity. It's going to take every bit of scripture to maintain faith and to keep growing and advancing and maturing in the faith. I don't want to, you know, Paul said to the Corinthians, I thought by this time you'd be ready for me, but you're still babes, you're still carnal. And nothing has changed in these 2,000 years overall. There are many in churches that are that way, and they shouldn't be. But, uh, I mean, I thought when I entered into pastoral ministry, when I started teaching the Word, I thought Christians were just going to just just take, take this and run. And many have, but many have not. You know, D.L. Moody, that great evangelist, that man of God, he did not want Ira Sankey, his, his music leader, to sing Onward Christian Soldiers. Moody said, you know, we make a poor army. And uh, it's sad. He was a commentary on the state of things as he ministered. And it really hasn't changed a lot. If it were, I mean, if we, why are there so many churches? Why can't each town have one solid church? Well, I've got some answers to that, but we still got seven verses to go. Verse 3, concerning his son. This is what the prophets wanted to look into. Concerning his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh. It was all about Christ. Paul is this gospel, these prophecies. It's about his son. Highlighting that unique relationship between the father and the son. Jesus is his name. 
Christ is his distinction. Messiah distinguishes him from everybody else, and Lord is his title. Who was born of the seed of David. That's a New Testament phrase referring to Jesus as a descendant of King David, which is important if the prophecies are going to be uh, accurate, trustworthy, prophetically announced a thousand years ago to David. First uh, Chronicles seventeen twelve. You can reference that if you must. But so it's put into writing long before the event occurred, just to give the scoffers something to scoff at. Sarcasm. This reference as the seed of David comes from Isaiah chapter 11. There shall come forth a rod from the stem of Jesse. Jesse is the father of David, King David. And a branch shall grow out of its roots. Of course, it's messianic, and it's talking about Christ. And Paul is pointing this out. God promised David that there would always be one from his bloodline eligible to rule the people of God. And here he is. Jesus in his humanity had a family that had connections to David, King David, a bloodline. He was born in the house of Joseph, but he's not the son of Joseph. The Bible never refers to him as the son of Joseph. In fact, Luke says, supposing Joseph the father. Well, that still gave him the claim to the throne, born in the house of Joseph. That's why when you read Matthew 1, the book of genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham, is a big deal. It's linking everything that's going forward with all that has been revealed going back. And Mary's line that Luke gives us, Matthew gives us Joseph's line. Here's the house he was born in. He's got entitlement. Mary, uh, Luke gives us Mary's line in Luke chapter 3, which gave him the human bloodline to the throne. And so no matter which way you turned, he had rights. He was from the tribe of Judah. He was from the the house of David. And those in his day should have picked up on it. Some did. Most did not. According to the flesh, that's his humanity. That's God voluntarily associating himself with sinners, humbling himself and being born amongst us. Isaiah 53, he poured out his soul unto death, and he was numbered with the transgressors, and he bore the sin of many. You know the Christmas story is God wearing humanity, putting on humanity to defeat sin. Isaiah 9, for unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder. Well, for a Jew, that gov- that he better be in the line of David. It continues, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. Upon the throne of David and over his kingdom to order and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward. Even forever, the zeal of the Lord will perform this. It's going to happen. Now, how do you feel as a Christian when you hear Scripture verses read from the pulpit? It should energize you. It energizes me. I love when I read commentators and they quote Scripture and and properly apply it. Coming back to Christ's coming. In his humanity, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory as... The glory is one begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. The only, it says, the only begotten of the Father. Dave Hunt said this, 
Give me just one example of prophecy for the coming of Buddha, Confucius, Zoroaster, Krishna, or Muhammad, much less one that was fulfilled. It's pretty accurate. It's so simple. Who else has got this? Should that be enough to alert a human being that this is worth their time and ultimately their conversion? Verse Paul says, Declare to be the Son of God with power according to the Spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. Well, let's keep that with verse 3. Concerning his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh and declared to be the Son of God with power according to the Spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. That Greek word, declare, well, verse 3 is the fact of his humanity. Verse 4 now is the fact of his deity. That Greek word in verse 4 declared is haridzo, where we get our English word horizon. That's a distinction. A horizon is a clear demarcation line between the earth or the sea and the sky. Christ clearly distinct through the resurrection from everybody else. The resurrection distinguishes him from all creation to be the Son of God with power. I think that those Christians who only get a charge out of singing songs, emotional stimulants, unfortunately, as carnal, if that's all you got, uh, there's so much more to Christianity than just that. I think that to understand the power of God involves more than the feelings of a human being. There's more to us than just sensation. And sensation will get out of hand. It will, it will take over the ship. After a while, the scripture's not even bothered with. When are we going to sing? You hear Christians say, yeah, I, didn't, I don't go to that church because of the music. You have just identified an immature Christian. Unless they're singing bad things, of course. But what is the most powerful draw of a Christian to an assembly of believers? It is the word of God coming from the pulpit, and it is the love of Christ coming from the people. If you have those two things, you are ahead. If you have not those two things, then what are you left with? If I have not love, the Bible says, I am nothing. If they're not listening to the word of God, what wisdom do they have, says the scripture. These things tie in. They're all connected. And one should not be thrown out for the other. We read about in the book of Acts. This is a good metaphor. I better write it down. <laughs> in the book of Acts, when that ship was sinking, they threw overboard the cargo. Well, in Christianity, if you're in dire straits, there's nothing in our theology to throw overboard. We keep it all. Because it's all right, and it's all worth going down with. And that, if that weren't so, there'd be no Christian martyrs. To, I hope I didn't lose you on these things. Um, to be the Son of God with power, the self-existent Christ, according to the Spirit of holiness. Now, we get the Trinity in this verse. The Father is mentioned, the Son, and now the Holy Spirit. Jesus is the one person that never had to apologize for anything he said. He never had to take back a single word spoken. Oh, I'm sorry, I shouldn't have said that. That belongs to sinners. Hebrews chapter 7, for such a high priest, 
Now, Hebrews written much later. He's looking back at the life of Christ some 35 years before he wrote Hebrews. For such a high priest was fitting for us, who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and has become higher than the heavens. Yeah, because he lowered himself to be one of us. But he was always equal with the Father. By the resurrection from the dead, the supreme note of his power in, in our eyes. Um, you, know, you know, the Romans had no appreciation for the Jews. And yet in this church in Rome, there are Jews and Christians. And crucifixion was the lowest form of execution given to a criminal in the eyes of a Roman also. What king would a Gentile come to worship and adore who allowed himself to be Jewish and to be crucified. And yet they came until they took over. Because the Christians were preaching this about Jesus' crucifixion. Jesus said, no one takes my life from me, but I lay it down myself. That's sovereignty. I have power to lay it down and I have power to take it again. That's sovereignty and love in that one verse. So no one is forcing you to be crucified and you are allowing this? Why? Because of you. Because of those to come. Because of those past. Verse 5. Through him we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all nations for his name. Well, taking the verse from the back that all nations is for the Gentiles. That includes them. With the Jews. Which, of course, we, you know, Paul suffered so much for daring to think that Messiah was the Christ of the Gentile also. Where there is no saving faith, there can be no true obedience to Christ. So you take an antichrist person, for example, someone against Jesus. But they don't steal and they don't commit. Well, it's not being accounted to them as righteousness. Because that's in the Ten Commandments and they got those two right. It won't help them. Because there's no saving faith. For obedience to the faith. To the faith. Hebrews 6. Without faith it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is. He must identify him. He must come to terms with the terms of God. And so obedience is a big deal with God. But it starts with saving faith. There are two types of faith that we get in the New Testament. The one where we have faith in Christ, we come to Him, He's Lord and Savior. Then there's the one that allows us to continue on, on the, the, what generates service. We serve by faith, because of our faith. Now there are some brands of Christianity, or no, not Christianity, but there are some brand of Christians that turn obedience into oppression. Are you a snob Christian? Always looking down on those who are struggling? Maybe not. They don't, maybe they don't dress the way you want them to dress. Now, of course, everything within reason, uh, you know, um, there, are, there, are, there is an appropriate and inappropriate tire in most places. It was part of the issue that Paul was dealing with in Corinth with the women having their head covered and things like having their hair cut and things like that. There are some cultural things that we want to be sensitive to to a point. But not to the point where we are so religious that we become not witnesses, not lawyers, but judges. Ecclesiastes 7. Do not be overly righteous, nor be overly wise. Why should you destroy yourself? 
That is a profound word from God. Obedience is never legalistic. Legalistic essentially is you've got to do these rules to get favor with God. Not grace. Your work. That's what makes God, makes God happy. Well, true obedience does please the Lord. But it's not the whole story. However, on the other hand, there's this sloppy Christianity that thinks it can just sin carelessly. That drifts into uh, flat-out disobedience. And uh, Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. Well, that's some pretty powerful incentive. So obedience will not allow us to embrace that which insults Christ. In other words, now you may be struggling with something. I'm not talking about a struggle. I'm talking about champion, or being an advocate for, a champion for that cause. Our minds uh, are not to cuddle with things that are false according to Christ or in opposition to him. Have I lost a youth on this? Are you still with me? Or are you doodling on a pad? Or you're wondering how much time is left? Satan is hoping you are. He hopes you are. Because he's licking his chops at you. Yeah. Preach the word, pastor. You preach it, I'll distract them. Because they will be distracted. Or not. You can't come to Sunday with your A-game if you haven't been applying it through the week. you got to be ready, fighting all the time. Regardless of how you feel, how many times you get tripped up, get back up. If you are blatantly flying the flags of sin in outright um, rebellion or insult to Christ and his cross and his Father, don't expect that grace to apply to you. Don't pick a fight with God. It's not, risk, it's not worth risking your eternal destiny. 2 Timothy 2. Nevertheless, a solid foundation of God stands. Having this seal, the Lord knows those who are His. And let everyone who names the name of Christ depart from iniquity. In that platoon of Christians that are trying to depart from iniquity, but just can't find their way out. God takes the effort as the deed. He told that to David. The heart's got to be right. It's one thing if your flesh struggles, the spirit should always know its place. There is no excuse for not knowing your place in the face of sin as a Christian. That's why many Christians leave Bible teaching churches. They don't want their sin dealt with. The Bible deals with it. If I just stood up and read the chapters, they would tell you know, i got to find another church. This keeps hitting me. Yeah, because they're factoring out the grace of God, which is so incredibly powerful, and I don't know that that exists anywhere else. Not, not in, you know, some may abuse it and becomes lawlessness. That's not grace. Well, may we not hand out pardons where Jesus does not hand them out. Here's a picture from the Old Testament of... What it means to separate from those who are flying the flag of immorality or spiritual disobedience, uh, idolatry, whatever it may be. In the Old Testament, 
You know, Moses went to be with the Lord, uh, not dead yet, but he's up on the mountain and he's receiving the Ten Commandments and he comes down and the people are just having a good old time. They're having a party. They're dancing around a golden uh, idol. And it got so that we come to this point where Moses has to act. And we pick it up in Exodus 32. Now, when Moses saw that the people were unrestrained, there it is, right there. No war, no resistance. They've signed off to it, not only in their flesh, but in their hearts. They were unrestrained. The Christian that is fighting sin and failing is not unrestrained. That Christian is trying to break free. Continues. When Moses saw that the people were unrestrained, for Aaron had not restrained them. Pause there. There's a pastor not doing his job. Because he doesn't want to offend the people, or he doesn't want them to turn on him. When I, I, I stand by, when a pastor runs a popularity pa- uh, contest, he can't pastor. When he's trying to get people to like him for the sake of liking him, he has not decreased, he has increased. Uh, and so, for Aaron had not restrained them to their shame among their enemies. So there are, there are enemies, there are spiritual enemies, there are things that will hurt us. Then Moses stood in the entrance of the camp and said, whoever is on Yahweh's side, come to me. And all the sons of Levi gathered themselves together to him. And he said to them, Thus says Yahweh God of Israel, Let every man put his sword on his side and go in and out from the entrance to, the, to entrance throughout the camp. And let every man kill his brother, every man his companion. And we're not promoting that part, but it's, I get to the point. And every man his neighbor... The sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses. And about 3,000 men of the people fell that day. It cost to be righteous. Now, this is what catapulted the tribe of Levi to be the priest and the support, the, the helpers of the priest. That tribe was singled out. This is what did it. And Christ is not asking us to kill anyone. But he is still insisting we side against those who side against him. It's a very simple thing. And everybody in this room can understand that. Christ wants you to side against those things that side against him. So, Paul continues. This, all of this is part of what he's talking about. The Jesus Christ, the prophets, the, the line of David. All of that is built into this. Among all the nations for his name. And there it is for the Gentiles as commented on. Verse 6. And whom you also are called of Jesus Christ. And uh, these are the Jews and the Gentiles who have been called to Christ. But Jesus said, many are called, but few are chosen. Uh, Matthew chapter 22 verse 14. And the reason why they're not chosen is because they didn't receive the Christ. They were called to and they did not. Uh, to all who are in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, back up a little bit. Let me give you a, 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 an example of someone who was called and not chosen. Judas Iscariot. Very simple. Uh, you, you, Judas did miracles under, the, under Christ's authorities. He, had he died that day, it would have been good for him. But he did not. Well, coming back to verse 7, to all who are in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints. Really, it's called saints. 
The translators have inserted called to be, but it is called saints. And that's why he addresses many of his letters, almost all of them, except the pastoral ones, to the saints. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now he is introducing his letter. He had been just warming up. And he's still warming up. But when he gets to verse 8, he's going to start, start just turning it loose. It's sort of like a pastor who has too much to say. Fortunately, you don't know anything about that. A saint is a saved sinner and a loved follower of Jesus Christ. And that's why he couples uh, beloved of God called saints. You're not only called to follow Jesus, you are loved. Every single believer is loved. And I have to tell you that because Satan tries to come and tell you you're not loved. Uh, you know, he challenges, he'll challenge you to your death. Until the day you die, you will face temptation. And you are built to win. In the end, uh, that grace is a shield about you. Anyway, uh, and you shouldn't fret. You just need to get down to business. You can spend your, you know, burn your calories up worrying or burn them up taking territory from the enemy. Uh, saints have never been a special class of people in Christianity or the church, a holier-than-thou others. Though, you know, that, that is a man-made insult to the work of Christ to say, we're going to vote on your sainthood. Well, that's already been covered at the cross. I was made a saint the day I gave my life to Christ, and that had been in place from the foundations of the world. So, uh, and incidentally, the very word church is a, in the New Testament is ecclesia in the Greek, the called out ones, the separated ones, the saints. So you have two different words uh, with the same behind, fact behind them. Uh, it is a companion word. Jesus calls all who would hear, but many don't respond. Uh, and saints, incidentally, is plural. It's all of them. Everybody in that church, he is referring to one separated to Christ, as God pointed out in Leviticus. Grace to you and peace from God. Uh, this is what God wants. He wants peace with his people. Uh, charis, that ger- the word grace in the Greek, and you, uh, the Jewish equivalent, shalom, peace, uh, if you are very analytical you're gonna, you, and you don't check that, you're going to have a hard time as a Christian because God's going to allow things that are counterintuitive. He's going to let things happen that make no sense. In fact, the other way would have been better. When Paul writes to the Philippians, again from jail, he says the peace of God, now catch this, which surpasses all understanding. That takes everything to another level. There's a submission in that that's only available to those who know Christ. I have a peace that is not consistent with natural logic, but it has every bit of spiritual wisdom on it. Paul could have reasoned, you know, Lord, you could have gotten me to Rome without the snake bite and the shipwreck. You got Phoebe there with no problem. And he, but he had a peace still with God that went above all understanding. 
It does not mean that we stop being rational beings. It's that we do not let what our natural abilities understand to cancel what the spiritual man knows better. A brief picture of that is Peter walking on the water. A rational man would never have even asked. But because of his relationship with Jesus, he knew he could ask for things like this under those terms, and he got it. And then he lost it very quickly. But uh, just understand, this grace and this peace to you, the, the goal of the Christian is to have that peace that surpasses understanding. And i got to tell you, it ain't easy to get there or it's to stay there. But it is worth it is worth going back to. It's, it's better than a, a good restaurant. That oh, I got to go back there. Uh, I want that peace that goes beyond understanding. That has in it submission. Fine, Lord, that's how you want it. I'll do without it. And it can be pretty um, tough at times. But it's better to have it than not to be, than to be without it. Our he comes, he closes here. Our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, this and our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ is including Jesus on the level with the Father. He is not an addition. Uh, we have the same thing said about God, Galatians, God the Father. Galatians 1 4, according to the will of our God and Father. See, it's not like God, oh, and then there's the Father. No, it's God who is the Father. It is the Father in heaven. And Jesus Christ, his son, who is God, the son of God, as, or he already said. Well, we're <clears throat> about done. I just want to close with a couple of verses. Uh, God does not share his divinity with created beings. Uh, Jesus, the son of God, Isaiah 42, 8, I am Yahweh. That is my name and my glory I will not give to another, nor my praise to carved images. And, of course, Christ is the exception. He <clears throat> is the distinction. And when he showed up as a human, uh, he was born of Mary. And Jesus said to Philip, John 14, 9, He who has seen the Father, oh, pardon me, he who has seen me has seen the Father. Well, I love talking about the deity of Christ. I love talking about the deity of the Holy Spirit and the eagerness of God to give the Holy Spirit. And I like to smash the flesh whenever I can because I can't stand my own flesh. And one day when I get to heaven, I'll have it no more. Um, you know, I, just a wonderful prospect. Lay ahead of the Christian. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, your word, a lamp to our feet. We thank you for every bit of it. I pray for our youth. And Lord, let you establish what that age is. That they would not waste the benefits you bring into their life. That they would not realize them when it's, so much has already been missed. May they grab hold of it early and not let it go. May we Christians, Lord be tougher than what our flesh would like us to be. May we be spiritually tougher. If you've been listening and you have sensed the Holy Spirit calling you into a relationship with God, then 
Come into the relationship. Receive the Lord Jesus Christ. If you make this prayer, God will receive you. You will be his. If you say, Lord Jesus, I am a sinner. I have broken your commandments. I ask you to forgive me. I thank you for dying on the cross to take my spiritual punishment. And I ask you to be from this day forward not only the one who saves my soul from a judgment to come, but who is now Lord over my life here and now. I give my life to you. Now, Father, if anyone has made that prayer this morning, may they not hesitate to come forward when invited at the end of service. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.